You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. This, this is Mark Koyama, author of uh, Persecution and Toleration, The Long Way Into Religious Freedom. And this is Noel Johnson, the co-author on Persecution and Toleration, The Long Road to Religious Freedom, is a book about the origins of liberalism, um, but from the angle of religious freedom. So most of us live in uh, liberal societies, or at least societies which aspire to be liberal. Um, so it's hard to understand how we got, got here. It's hard to understand how we went from a world where no one thought that religious freedom or liberalism in general were, were particularly good ideas. People believed that, of course, if there's one true religion, we should be able to compel everyone to, to adhere to it. Now, almost no people in, in liberal Western societies believe in that type of religious compulsion. So the question is, how do we get from this world of, uh, of intolerance, this world of, of liberalism and tolerance and religious freedom? And that's what we, we, we try and do in this book. Um, the main difference, original contribution of our argument, compared to maybe some of the other arguments you've encountered or people have encountered uh, on this topic, is that we place a lot of emphasis on institutional change. So as um, institutional economic historians, we develop arguments which stress the change in the incentives that individuals face. And those changing incentives then produce different behavior. This contrasts with an alternative approach which might emphasize the contribution of changing ideas. So a more, uh, a more um, an ideas-based argument might place a lot of emphasis on the distinctive contributions of particular liberal thinkers, perhaps John Locke, Pierre Bale, um, Voltaire, who, who argued for religious toleration and religious freedom. In our story, you've got to get behind the incentives facing political actors, particularly rulers, to understand why it was that liberal ideas were persuasive uh, in the 18th and 19th century, but were not persuasive earlier. So as we document in the book, there are many instances of thinkers or uh, philosophers coming up with arguments for religious pluralism, toleration in the ancient world, in the Middle Ages, or in the early modern period, and mostly being ignored, uh, ignored for political reasons. So our story is an institutional account of this transformation. Um, we emphasize a transition from a world where government was based on identity rules, rules which treated people differently based on their religious or ethnic identity, to a world of more general rules, and the transition from a world where states were extremely weak and fragmented and unstable to a world where states are relatively secure, collect predictable amounts of taxation, and apply rules relatively generally. And a world, and also the final element of this transformation is we've gone from a world where religion is not just a private affair, but religion matters for the state and for policies, to a world where that's no longer the case. It's no longer the case that religion plays a key role in legitimizing political authority. So that those three transitions, those three, three changes, were crucial in our argument of the origin for, for why liberalism arose in Western Europe and North America. Well, I think uh, we came to it uh, when, when Mark was hired at 
George Mason, which was a couple years after I was, uh, we started working on our project together on witchcraft trials in Aubergine, France, a paper that we eventually ended up uh, putting in the Journal of Law and Economics. And in the course of doing that paper, we worked well together. And I forget what was the, what was what, what did we do right after that? There was uh, witch trials, and then uh, we wrote a paper on the origins of tax farming in England and France, so the origins of like investments in state capacity. We also um, wrote a paper on heresy and and uh, the role of state plays in either enforcing and punishing religious deviance or in uh, in in like tacitly tolerating them. That was published right. in the Journal. Of economics, but I think uh, so. We began working, I guess, together as soon as I arrived in George Mason, yeah, as Noel said, in 2011. And um, those papers went along pretty well, but they were building on, I would say, they're building on research themes which for both of us go back further. So Noel was working on, um, as you'll probably talk about, topics of state capacity, uh, mostly in France, in any modern France, uh, going back, I guess, to your dissertation. And in my dissertation, I had worked on. Uh, the problem of like usury prohibitions in medieval Europe and rent seeking, and how these um, usury prohibitions led to, to like, in, in the case of England, the expulsion of Jewish populations. And I was interested in, so I was also interested in state capacity, like like, like, Noel, like Noel was, but I was also interested in religion. And I guess these projects we worked on initially, looking at witches and heretics, uh, were all leading to this, bringing these two things together, which I think is what we do in the book. Yep. And then the key. I think the key uh, kind of theme which allowed us to kind of really uh, tie these things in was when we, we had the great fortune to kind of um, work on this paper on Jewish pogroms and, 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 and colder weather, weather shocks. So this paper, I guess I can talk about it um, more, is, um, is an ex we now, oh, it's about how minorities were vulnerable in medieval and any modern Europe when the economy was doing badly. So it's essentially a test of the scapegoating theory. So when the economy is doing badly, perhaps because of um, the harvest is, is bad or the the, the, the the growing season climate has been bad, um, Jews were more likely to be persecuted. Uh, so that paper allowed us to kind of combine a lot of these interests because it's looking at the fate of a minority community, but it's also looking at how that fate is shaped by the post-constitutions they're living in, so types of states they're living in. And we found, actually, that the, uh, the vulnerability of Jewish communities to these types of pogroms Pogroms induced by supply shocks was greatest in the Middle Ages, uh, and greatest in, in picking weak states. And it, that relationship weakened over time, so that by the end of the period we study, uh, even though there are still sometimes pogroms, they were no longer related to these local supply shocks. And so I think once we wrote that paper, we had all the ingredients to try and tie it together into a larger theory or larger framework, which was which would become a book. Of course, that's easier said than done. And it's taken us, you know, many years really to, to kind of put this all together and, and publish persecution and, and toleration. Yeah, and I would just add the, uh, at least for me initially, uh, the work on um, witch trials and tax farming. I was more interested in the uh, state capacity, state building angle to study things, and Mark brought much more the religion side. Although you were interested in both things, and the project gradually evolved. The witches paper I was writing. Uh, for when I was working towards a failed dissertation uh, in a history program at Cornell that I dropped out of. I remember drafting that paper in the library of the Pompidou Center like, you know, many years ago, but we changed it a great deal. But again, like, but once we, I think Mark's right, once we got to the paper on the temperature shock, that paper uh, 
really um, brought together a lot of the themes. And I think it was at that point that we started thinking more about writing a book on it. And initially, the book was going to be about uh, the development of general rules and state capacity, and religion was much less involved with it. But then we realized that we kept on writing on uh, Jewish persecution and heresy trials and things like this. And so religion was a natural place for us to go. So the, how the, the, the project evolved over the course of several years. I think Noel's already touched on, on some of the, uh, the ways we, we, we ended up adding, bringing in more topics of religion. I am, um, I've always been a, well, for many years, been a member of um, ASREC, um, attending his conference on the economics of religion. So over time, both of us saw more and more synergies with work um, done, in, done by other scholars in, in the field. So we were kind of influenced by that in a very productive way. So Timur Quran who's the uh, book series editor, he, um, he's also involved in the economics of religion, looking at Islamic Middle East. But many of the concepts he was working with and developing arguments he was he was building were relevant for us. Similarly, uh, Jared Rubin, who also has a book on um, on religion and, and uh, institutions in Europe and the Middle East, his book you know developed complementary themes. So as we were working on the papers, we began to kind of articulate a more general framework for thinking about this transition from what we, what we call world of identity rules to a world of general rules, and um, and that really was that that was key to this project because what, what the book is not just a collection of our essays, it's not a collection of papers. It's a it's a at least aspires to be an you know original coherent single argument which takes us from the Middle Ages to the modern modern period. So the uh, the way the book is structured, we uh, think of uh, the development of Liberal, uh, liberal concept of uh, religious freedom emerging in the West as having three historical phases. And initially, during the Middle Ages, uh, up until around 1500 or 1600 or so, the Roman time of the Reformation, that was the world of conditional toleration. So identity rules, which are uh, were rules used to govern. So for example, if you were a Jew, then you had different rules applied to you by governments than if you were a non-Jew. If you were uh, a man, you were treated differently than a woman. If you were a member of a certain guild, you were treated differently than if you were not part of that guild. And so uh, this is a very different way of governing than we have today, where uh, rules are, at least in principle, supposed to be applied uniformly across different groups and not tied to, for example, their uh, personal beliefs about religion. So in that initial phase, that was an equilibrium that we describe in the sense that states found it very, or governments found it very convenient to use those rules and cheap to use those identity rules in order to do things that governments do, like collect revenues so that they could fight war or provide public goods, of which there were much fewer at that time. Uh, so uh, if you think about it, if you can allow, if you can treat Jews differently, but then give them the right to lend money, for example, uh, they can make profits from lending that money, but then you can also, as the government, uh, tax away that money from the Jews. So this is something that Mark can probably speak to. That equilibrium. This is uh, this was part of your dissertation, right? This work. So maybe you should describe. I can. Uh, so the, this is kind of a, a rent-seeking equilibrium. So um, the existence of a general prohibition on usury, which is religious in origin. So uh, they, you know, the statements in the Bible and Deuteronomy, um, and that's about, 
which um which basically outlaw or or, or outlaw interest taking as usury or interest, not just high interest rates like we like we might define usury today. And so this widely shared antipathy towards money lending, distrust of money lending, belief that money lending is akin to theft because you're ste the, the lender is kind of stealing, uh, you know, is, is taking more than he's giving. That belief, which is widespread in a lot of pre-modern societies in medieval Europe, becomes more and more binding as a commercial economy is growing. So after 1100, there's a commercial revolution, trade is expanding, markets are expanding, opportunities for investment are going, uh, are going up. However, to make use of those opportunities, you need to borrow money, and you often need to borrow. And the, you know, it's going to make sense for the lender to want to get a return on this money, especially if there's a lot of risk involved. Um, so that situation produces a tension whereby there's a huge pent-up demand for credit, but supply um, is very constrained because of the usury laws, and rulers are looking for ways around this. And Jews, the Jewish populations, offered a ready way to. to circumvent the usury restrictions, and rulers gradually discovered an extremely lucrative source of revenue. So this was most, um, this was particularly well developed in England in the 13th century, where Jewish money lending became basically the mon a monopoly. So Christian money lenders were expropriated and, and, and got rid of. Jewish money lenders were forced to lend through a royal institution um, called the Exchequer of a Jury. Every debt was tallied and um, recorded, so that you couldn't surreptitiously lend money off a book. The king, the king's officials, would know every loan which was being made, and therefore they would have some sense of how rich or how much money each individual Jewish community in England, whether the community of Leicester or Oxford or London, how much money they would have. And in the event that the king needed immediate revenue, in these, de in these days there's no public debt, King can't really borrow money as a the state can't borrow money. The king's ability to borrow money is very is very limited because people know he's a king. Hence, he can afford to, to imprison someone who demands that he repays the loan. Um, in that situation, the king's ability to raise taxes is very limited. This is before the, there's a widespread acceptance of general taxation. So the best, most immediate source of funds the king has is the exchequer of a jury. He can basically expropriate whatever profit the Jews are making from money lending. So this is a uh, like the most extreme form I guess of how identity rules, um, initial toleration, and weak states interact, and it's a situation which um, gives the king a reason to protect the Jewish community to some degree. So it's it's consistent with the existence of a minority community. They're not being, at least for most of this period, not being totally destroyed, but it's also totally incompatible with any religious freedom or any general liberalism. One of the beautiful parts of the story, of the Mark story about the Jews, is that uh, this economic equilibrium also reinforces a cultural equilibrium of anti-Semitism. You know, if, for example, you see Jews in this privileged position of being able to lend money, and it reinforces uh, stereotypes, you know, of Jews, you know, as Shylocks, you know, and things like this, which also makes it easier for the government to expropriate the Jews in the case that they might need to. So it makes the collection of taxes even easier. So it's this nice example of economics and culture coming together and being reinforced together. Uh, but this is not just the book is not just a story about Jewish communities as well. We should emphasize. Um, uh, so, for example, you can often you can also think of uh, many tax farming arrangements, which is highly decentralized way of collecting taxes, where you basically auction off the right to individuals to do it, as uh, being another uh, sort of equilibrium that's related to do to this. 
you could think about uh, guilds, you know, which you know are going to be a source of revenue for states as well and cities. Um, but in order to be a part of a guild, you often have to have certain religious beliefs and adhere to certain saints, for example. Um, and you're also going to be given privileged treatment, you know. And so these are also an example of identity rules that are tied to religion that are also making it possible to govern in a, in a limited way. Now, that's, the, that's just the first phase, right? And then what we describe in the book is the breakdown in what we call this conditional toleration equilibrium. And this breakdown is coming, for, is, is coming about for two primary reasons. One is that there's a military revolution that is in full force by the 16th century, and that's making it more expensive to uh, fight wars. And so this means that governments are confronted with uh, the... Um, with either failure or with uh, raising enough money to do things like build uh, big castles with Trasakalian, you know, structure, you know, or to get cannon, you know, in the field and things like this. Um, but that means they have to raise revenue, and they can't raise enough revenue through these old, these old organizational equilibria that they had using the identity rules. The other uh, main historical event that is leading to the breakdown in this conditional toleration equilibrium is the Reformation in our story. Mark, did you want to talk about the Reformation? So the Reformation is um, increasing uh, religious heterogeneity at a local level. And of course, it, we don't view the Reformation as a purely exogenous shock. It's not like people's religious beliefs some, some suddenly change. But it's certainly um, the conjunction of new ideas critical of the Catholic Church and the technology of a printing press, which is giving, me, giving people like Martin Luther unprecedented ability to disseminate his criticisms of the Catholic Church. That's changing the underlying kind of distribution of religious beliefs across Europe, European societies in different ways. And it's making it harder for the states to, to govern based on reliance on religious legitimacy, conditional toleration, and, and kind of identity rules. So for example, um, some, a country like England, in 1500, everyone is nominally, almost everyone, refugee, Lollard, her heretics, but basically everyone is nominally a Catholic. That doesn't mean they're all like perfect Catholics or they necessarily know a lot of doctrine, but normally they're Catholic. So when the Catholic Church legitimizes or delegitimizes a ruler, it's pretty straightforward. There's one Catholic Church. If, if the Catholic Church is on the side of the king, that gives the king a lot of legitimacy. Uh, what happens after the Reformation is um, the English crown switches religion several times. So Henry VIII uh, divorces Catherine of Aragon, marries Anne Boleyn, makes England Protestant. His son is also Protestant. But Mary, um, his daughter, switches the country back to Catholicism, and Elizabeth returns it to former Protestantism. At each point, when they're switching, there's going to be a large chunk of a population who do not adhere to the religion of the crown anymore. So there are a large proportion of Catholics who are a minority um, during Elizabeth's reign, and that's a source of political instability. Even though the vast majority of Catholics were undoubtedly loyal to the crown, there are some who are not. Uh, the Pope declares the Queen a, a traitor, usurper, a heretic, and hence legitimizing assassination attempts against her. Following this, the, the, the attitude of the English state is to view all Catholics as potential economists and traitors. Um, so this, this, um, this is having the effect of calling into question the value of religion as a legitimating force for the state. Uh, at the same time, as Noel described, the military revolution is happening basically simultaneously. And so at the same time, there's all this pressure to raise revenues in new ways, uh, make rules more general, and that 
that, that in the 17th and 18th century, that produces a different set of incentives for, for rulers. So our story is very much an institutional economic story. It's a story where it's not that individuals are better or worse or more or less tolerant. It's that they face different incentives at different points in time. By the 17th century and certainly the 18th century, rulers face incentives where which incline them to, to increasingly turn a blind eye to religious differences and religious uh, problems and focus on ways to raise revenue. So a, a key example of this is Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell has very strong religious beliefs. He is you know, an independent or uh, we would call a Puritan. Uh, but he's keen, he doesn't persecute Catholics in particular. He's, he doesn't want religious persecution. And when there's an opportunity to invite the Jews to return to England, having been absent for 300 years, he does so, and predominantly we think on kind of uh, fiscal grounds. He sees this as an opportunity to basically attract a uh, prosperous merchant community, a community who will help fund him wars against Spain or, um, or other Catholic powers. Similarly, uh, Cardinal Richelieu in France, um, again, he's, a, he's not a liberal uh, ruler. He's not a, you know, we don't have to uh, claim anything. He's ambitious. Um, mercantilist who wants to maximize the power of a French state. But when um, a, a population of, of, of uh, Portuguese conversos, so these are Jews who had converted to Catholicism but who had been persecuted by the Inquisition in Spain, when they arrive in Bordeaux, he basically instructs local authorities to not investigate their religious beliefs whatsoever. Why? Because they're important for raising money to help him fight the Spanish. So the incentives have changed after the Reformation, after the military revolution, in such a way that rulers are going to look for, they're going to be focusing on on ways to raise revenue, and they're going to turn a blind eye to religious uh, deviance or religious kind of differences, and that's going to provide an institutional environment which is going to allow uh, more liberal ideas about religion and religious freedom, and then liberalism will gen generally to emerge. And we should emphasize as well that uh, one reason this is a book, you know, and we felt that this story could not be told in academic papers, is because there is historical contingency involved in the whole story. Uh, the incentives change per state. Uh, once you have the military revolution and the reformation, the incentives change so that they are more inclined, or they're, 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 they're confronted with heterogeneity of religious belief that if they want to raise revenues in order to survive, they must deal with. One way to deal with it is by relaxing the bounds of uh, uh, the bounds of uh, what's considered to be religious deviance in the states. But another response could have been to persecute or destroy, you know, those re the religious deviance, as happened, for example, in the Iberian Peninsula in 1492. You know, when the Spain and a few years later the Portuguese expel all the Jewish communities from there. Uh, so it, it wasn't the case that all states. Uh, embraced religious freedom, uh, but the incentives increased and some of them did. I think I was surprised by the result that Mark already described with the temperature shocks and Jewish persecution. That, uh, I mean, that, that paper, the, it's based on about 1,800 cities, I believe, across Europe. And then, uh, well, no, actually, there's less. So that's the number of cities that you have population data. That paper has about uh, 900, I believe, cities where we knew Jewish communities were in at one point, And it covers a period of 800 years. 
and the temperature data are yearly. You know, so you, you have information based on tree ring and pollen counts and uh, other uh, proxy measures of temperature uh, that tell you what, what the growing season temperature was for every city for every year over that 800-year period uh, from 1100, you know, from 1000 until about 1800. Uh, and so that we actually get the result, you know, that the yearly, uh, you know, a abnormally cold growing season a year leads to a significant, both economically and statistically, increase in the probability of persecution of Jewish community, that did surprise me, just because of the breadth of the, uh, um, the study involved, yeah. Um, I think one thing which surprised me, not necessarily as we were finalizing the book, but at least going into the project, was that um, had you discussed with either of us perhaps 20 years ago what we were interested in, we would have said zinc formation and like rise of institutions which are conducive to like liberal market societies and markets. Um, but I actually, both of us, I think, were not focusing on religion per se as much at the time. And so the story would have been more like along the lines of maybe the work of Douglas North or um, Darren S. Mogan and James Robinson, which is a, who, who, scholars who both who all offer institutional accounts of, of how societies change. But they don't emphasize religion. Religion is not very important in their story. What, what I was surprised by, I guess, as I was reading things and putting together the various arguments is the extent to which religion is very important in um, all of these political changes uh, in a way that like us, after this, after the transformation, after the transition we're describing, it's very hard for us to understand because we tend to think of religion as a private thing, like people have their religious beliefs, that's not relevant for how policies operate. But it turns out when you read about the English Civil War, the conflicts between the Crown and, and Parliament in England in the 17th century, these are not secular discussions. They're essentially almost religious wars. Every side is defined by different religious policy. Um, so religion is really important, and the more you read about the history, the more you see this. So, the, I mean, a key part of the Glorious Revolution was the prohibition of Catholics from attaining uh, from attaining the throne. Uh, this, so for example, after the Glorious Revolution, English monarchs were not allowed to marry Catholics. I think until 2010 when it was changed, the law was changed. And that that's not how economists in the North Weingast tradition normally think about the Glorious Revolution. We think about the Glorious Revolution as uh, the imposition of restraints on the, on the arbitrary power of the monarch uh, and, and Parliament getting more more power to control taxation and spending. We don't think of it as a religious thing, right? Why, why is there a religious component to the Glorious Revolution? Well, it turns out it was absolutely crucial because in, given the particular political economy of, of England at the time, Catholicism was associated with arbitrary rule and absolutism, and so the one one of the ways you safeguard uh, limited government was what was through um, ensuring a Protestant succession. Similarly, uh, an, an example um, which I'm thinking about for kind of follow-up paper, which is not which is not in not in the book, is uh, Catholic emancipation. So one of the things we do know from the book is that Catholics had extremely severe disabilities placed on them throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. So legally, at least, Catholics could not inherit land. Uh, Catholic marriages were not recognized in law. Uh, so you'd have to have a, a, a Protestant marriage, even if you were Catholic. And uh, Catholics were barred from the army. They couldn't be lawyers. They couldn't work for government. They couldn't be members of parliament. And this only changes really late in English history. It changes in 1828. And why is like, so why, why did it take so long? Turns out it's a very kind of complicated story. The bottom line is that 
the, even in the 18th century, so even in the period when the Industrial Revolution is taking place, the English constitution is, is a constitution where religion and the state are, tied, are still tied together. There's still identity rules distinguishing Catholics from Protestants, and those identity rules are part of the way that they're giving privileges to the Protestants. The Protestants are privileged, and that privilege allows them to know that they, you know, the state will never become Catholic, and um, it, it, it gives the Church of England a lot of institutional power, and this changes very late in, in, in kind of uh, British history. So that's something which I was, uh, kind of, the importance of religion to all of these discussions is not something I was aware of, and actually in a in a follow-up paper, that's one of the themes we'll, we'll, we'll mention, because the transition in Britain to, from an oligarchy to a liberal democracy, which takes place in the 19th century, and economists and political scientists view this in terms of a response to the Industrial Revolution, a response to the demands of the poor for redistribution. Um, if you read some of the history, it has a religious component too, because it's associated with this transition from identity rules to general rules. It's exactly the time when Britain's becoming a liberal democracy that they're giving uh, equality to Catholics and to Jews and to atheists. I think what Mark just described is a, a research program, or many research programs, you know, that students could pick up. The extent to which religion is a vital component of almost any study of institutions in the pre-modern period, that is, in the period before say, the end of the 19th century in Western Europe is just huge. And that's one of the big things that comes out of the book. Uh, and also, there are many questions that the book leaves unanswered that it would be nice to have answers to. Uh, the book, for example, we began writing it uh, thinking this, that the book was going to be about the rise of state capacity and the development of general rules. Uh, and you know, how do you get property rights more secure, these sorts of questions. That question, I think, is probably forever going to be out there. We're not going to solve it. Uh, but there's a lot of work that can be done. Just to give you an example, we do have an example. Uh, we do have um, one story in the book we tell about the development of state capacity in France, where uh, we discuss it being based on uh, um, you know, where, where the state was taxing more than French people started thinking of themselves more as French. The problem, though, with this sort of story is that these locations where the state is also having higher taxation and people are identifying more as French by, say, the end of the 18th century, those are also, uh, these, these borders correspond to also linguistic borders. And this is very often something that we run into in economics and historical research, that the thing we want to argue is causing one thing to something else is also going to be correlated with other things. And I think this question about state building but how much of it is due to things like policy of states that are molding people's preferences versus how much is coming from something that is deeper, potentially linguistic, or if something even deeper than that, potentially. Those are questions which I think are being very actively pursued right now by people. But in general, just these questions of state formation are very important, and focusing on the religious aspect also is something that students could take. Anything I'd add is that there's a lot of great work now in the economics of religion, or specifically to the economic history of religion. So this is a, this is a, not a field which really existed as a coherent field 10, 15 years ago, but if you look at recent papers presented at conferences like ASRAC or other conferences, work by Jared Rubin, Stafford Becker, um, Jeremiah Detmar, uh, many other scholars um, on the economic history of religion. And Seymour Quran, who I've already mentioned, there are people doing great work um, on how these things interact. And I think it's 
an important part of understanding institutional change. And then one last thing, the uh, Alexander's question. Our book is focused on Europe, even though we do talk at some length about China, Japan, and uh, the Ottoman Empire, uh, the uh, the Islamic Middle East. But the um, this the the importance of religion to the development of uh, liberal uh, liberal values. Uh, the question of how this has evolved or failed to evolve in places that aren't Europe is a super interesting question that that deserves a lot more attention. Yeah, so we, we, we've touched on these comparisons, I think, but we don't solve them. So why is it that a society like um, China, like why is it that religion is less less important in legitimizing state authority? That's a question we don't we don't we can't really answer in this book, but obviously other scholars with more kind of area expertise than us could, could work on that question. I enjoy working with Mark. Mark is a very tolerant co author. Uh, I think uh, I mean collaboration it requires uh, like a degree of trust between the two co-authors. So that's I mean there are different there are many different ways one can collaborate on a research project. There are many different models, and uh, we also have other co-authors who we also collaborate with, and sometimes in similar or different ways. Uh, so every collaboration is different in some sense. Um, yeah, some level of trust and willingness to uh, to give each other like typos and mistakes, and also to over overlook kind of that. Uh, uh, be willing to negotiate and to discuss because you learn stuff from discussing it with someone else. So I think it's a huge benefit to having uh, uh, co-authors you can actually talk talk the ideas over with. There's certainly a benefit being the same institution or at least being geographically proximate because we can actually fight over some ideas or discuss things in person. Whereas if we were geographically separate, it would be much less uh, convenient to do so. Yeah, I was just going to mention we have great colleagues surrounding us, and also we're lucky that uh, George Mason put us in offices that were across the hall from each other, which makes it, I don't even have to get up from my computer to yell at Mark, and then Mark can yell at me without getting up from his computer, in good ways. And we've had other people, other students and, and other co-authors on these projects as well. So. so Mark, this has been a fun conversation. Thanks for chatting with me about it. Yeah, I've enjoyed it greatly at all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.